1: I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. This week, the Biden administration announced it had finalized a list of the first 10 drugs that Medicare would begin price negotiations over with Big Pharma. And it pleasantly surprised healthcare reform advocates by including short-acting insulin on its list of blockbuster drugs. That we had to have a 20-year-long battle simply to allow the government to do what basically every other government in the world is already doing is itself a scandal. Yet this also represents a major victory and those are very hard to come by against big pharma. Democrats have been publicly opposed to the law that blocks Medicare from drug price negotiations since it was implemented by a Republican majority back in 2003. But they've only held the White House, Senate, and House at the same time for two cycles since then. They failed to get it done the first time, or I should say, they deliberately failed to get it done the first time. But this time, they pulled it off. Alex Lawson is the executive director of the organization Social Security Works, which has been fighting big pharma on this issue for years now. I've known Alex as one of DC's most dogged public advocates for around 15 years, and he and I co-founded the small progressive publishing house Strongarm Press back in 2017, and we published my book, We've Got People, back in 2019. Speaking of which, I have a new book coming out this December, this one published by Henry Holt called The Squad. AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. It traces the evolution of the left in the United States from 2015, starting with Bernie's first campaign, through the 2022 midterms. It's essentially a sequel to my last one, and you can pre-order it now on all the book platforms, including independent ones. Pre-orders are hugely influential to how a book does on launch. So if you like the last book or you enjoy this podcast, please consider pre-ordering. Alex is actually a character in the book. And it tells the story of the blowback he took from the party establishment for his organization's relentless push on drug pricing. The dramatic fight to get where we did this week took a lot of twists and turns. Yet despite Pharma spending more than $700 million lobbying in 2021 and 2022, here we are. To tell the story of how the public won this small but significant victory, Alex joins us today. Well, Alex Lawson, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: right, so how how long have you been working on this? Not as long as Billy Tozan has, am I right?
0: Uh, Not quite as long. Uh, A decade, a little over a decade and a half.
1: Yeah, tell us a little bit about that uh, Louisiana congressman and and how we wound up in this situation where it took a fight to allow Medicare to actually negotiate with uh, drug companies for bulk drug purchases.
0: Uh, So I say this not... Being like a, a full student of all of the corrupt history in this town, but like I can name quite a few episodes like Teapot Dome scandal and things, that, and still uh, the Billy Tozan sellout is a, a really at least top three, uh, especially for its blatantness. So this is a guy. He's from Louisiana. Um, He was a Democrat. He was elected as a Democrat. He rose through um, the power structure to chair a really critical committee that has jurisdiction over Medicare, specifically where Medicare Part D is created. Um, And he is literally like a guided missile. This is what the reason he's doing this is to deliver for pharma. The Democrats actually lose the gavel, so they lose power. The Republicans take over. He just switches party, Um, just right over. He's like, no, I wasn't with those guys. I'm with pharma, Um, so that he could stay on that committee, and he had one goal, and it was to insert what's called the non-interference clause, Um, and all that says is that Medicare uh, cannot use its purchasing power to negotiate a lower rate, so like Even though Medicare is the largest purchaser of prescription drugs on the planet, it can't use that to get a lower rate on those uh, drugs that it buys. This is during the creation of Medicare Part D, which is a good thing, right? It's good that prescription drugs are covered in Medicare, because obviously, prescription drugs are part of health care.
1: Yeah, and, and some of our listeners who are as old as me, and you might actually remember this vote. Uh, th- it was before I was you know, professionally involved in, in politics, before I was a journalist, but I, I, re- I remember it happened at like five in the morning, it was around 2003, two, something like that, yeah. and you had Republicans pushing it, the, a gigantic entitlement benefit, yeah. and I remember thinking, why are Democrats against this? This seems great. I, mean, I you know, it's terrible that it it's a big giveaway for pharma, but I'd rather have the government like wasting money uh, on pharma and people getting medicine than people not getting medicine. So how did it happen that Democrats wound up kind of opposing this? And I remember Tom DeLay had to, he was like sending the the Capitol police after uh, Republican's who had voted the wrong way and and left and he like physically dragging them back and getting them to change their votes and kept the vote open for like five hours or something like that until the early morning until, you know, he and Billy Tozan were able to break enough arms that they passed it by like one vote. And then seniors got drug coverage. Yeah, It's like totally a bizarre through the looking glass kind of moment.
0: I think it is. I think it's one of those ones where, um, in the sort of, um, I don't know the day to day the Democrats were seeing that they that this had this fatal flaw in it and that when they took power, they would have a drug plan um, that wasn't a, a giveaway to pharma. I don't want to be like too this might be the right podcast for it, but it feels sort of like uh, when Richard Nixon put in the price controls, right like when Richard Nixon literally like took mm-hmm. the left, Economist's playbook and like did it but right didn't do it super well uh and also it was to put them in a pretzel it was actually to like to put the democrats in a pretzel um and meaning where they were put in a position where like they weren't the ones fighting for the medicare expansion even though like that is what they do, and the Republicans are always fighting against it. And then, as soon as they got the power, they were like, Oh, I'm going to take this one super popular thing that you have, uh, and I'm going to do it, but I'm going to carve into the middle of it this massive handout to industry. And that's the Tozan giveaway. Um, mm. And then, you know, the uh, sticking the landing there. Um, for Tozan is really the most amazing part because he just he almost immediately leaves government and takes a $2 million a year job at Pharma, the lobbying organization for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, I mean, it really was a well-constructed play uh, on the side of the Republicans because it did put Democrats in this tough place where they're like, hey, that's unfair, you're taking our issue but making it worse, right? Um, I do think that that's sort of a, a long-running um, tactic uh, in politics.
1: And this is the right podcast for that, because we just had Jamie Galbraith on here about a month ago talking about the history of price controls. Uh, so so to- totally fair. And actually, they outlawed what Tozan did after he did it. When Democrats came back into power right after 2006, yeah. they put in place rules that say you can't actually pass a law that gives billions of dollars to the pharmaceutical industry and then like within a week resign and take a job for millions of dollars running the t- the lobbying arm for the pharmaceutical industry like he didn't even do it in like a clever like i'm going to be a consultant on the side for them like they made him the president the president
0: <laughs> of it, it was the pharma a, it was a flex right i mean and yeah. and the the rules and stuff uh they actually like They're get aroundable, right? Like uh, the the revolving door has not been stopped. Um, I don't even think it's been slowed down. You just can't do it, and also like flex, point at your bicep, uh, and be like, "You see what I did there? Yeah, that was me."
1: And then he turns out to be the guy who's then sitting across the bargaining table with Barack Obama's team in two thousand nine. Like he's the. Pharma guy who then cuts the pharma deal. Talk a little bit about the two thousand nine pharma deal, and then we'll get up to what we what we what we got this week.
0: Yeah, did um, happily, but I'm going to do it through the lens of me, Alex Lawson, just so that uh, you can hear oh, it. Perfect, because uh, it was a real it was a real interesting um, DC moment for me. So I, I don't come to this through politics. I was working in outreach HIV clinic uh, in Chicago, and then a uh, outreach HIV clinic here in DC. And in those uh, positions, it was actually in Chicago that I, I was like, why is everything so stupid? Like, why is nothing work? And everyone's like, ah, it's policy. And I'm like, what is this policy stuff? Um, and you know, I, I kind of knew, but uh, in looking into it, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go get my masters uh, in policy in Washington, DC. And then I'm gonna work to dismantle uh, the pharmaceutical industry and build something based on public health in its place. Cause right now it makes absolutely no sense. I'd have clients, we have the drugs. This drug will keep this person alive. Why can't I just give this drug to this person who needs it? And they're like, well, yeah, you can't, it's policy. Who's gonna pay for it? And I'm like, that doesn't even make any sense. And it was sort of during um, a real high point in the global fight against HIV um, when South Africa and Brazil and others were um, working together um, to, to circumvent um, Pharma, who was saying, you know, these antiretrovirals cost $10,000 per patient per year. And everyone's like, no, they don't. They cost literally pennies to make. Like that's a, they, they don't cost that much. You just charge that much. So I was steeped in activism uh, and some really beautiful successes that I won't talk about here. But I literally moved to D.C to get my master's in policy, to work on uh, punching pharma in the face with public health-driven policy. Um, and then I see an opportunity to actually do that and in getting involved in the push for Obamacare. So I, I start working in the policy um, of an outside organization, Healthcare for America Now, that's pushing for Obamacare. And I'm like, I am ready to go. Let's do this. And it was like two weeks in, they come in and they're like, hey, guess what? Guess who we cut a deal with? Uh, We just got news from the White House. They cut a deal with pharma. They're not going to attack it. Pharma's not going to attack Obamacare. And I was like, oh, no, that's terrible. (laughs) Terrible. Don't make a deal with those guys. Um, But they did. And, you know, at the time, and you'll still find a lot of people who will defend it. I openly am like, that's literally one of the dumbest things that I've ever seen a democratic administration do because it was so cheap they they, they got billi- hundreds of billions of dollars for 150 million dollars in advertising money and then the lie that pharma wasn't going to you know run against um, run any ads against any of the any democrats Pharma, uh, like to trust pharma just in the first place is one of the silliest things that you could ever do. Um, So, you know, they got everything they wanted, which was government literally for eight years at the federal level did basically nothing to bring down the price of drugs to attack pharma's concentrated pricing power, its monopoly power. Um, and, And this is sort of a somewhat heterodox, but widely held in, in the HIV activism community point of view, which is that um, in the end, I mean, with the creation of PEPFAR, uh, G.W. Bush, who, you know, I used to get arrested in front of the White House on World AIDS Day every year, you know, uh, he did more for global HIV access than the Obama administration did. Um, the Obama administration wasn't all bad or anything like that, and Obamacare, the expansion of Medicaid, is a fantastic um, policy outcome. I'm very proud of it. But the idea that like, you could make a deal with pharma and that that wouldn't make you complicit in um, acts of overt evil that are sort of beyond many people's comprehension of how, how bad this industry is.
1: Right, we talk about Martin Trikelelli, or however you say his name. everybody agrees that Everybody agrees that he's evil. Uh, and
0: you-, you know this, Ryan. You know who the only people who hate him more than me are the actual captains of of the big pharmaceutical corporations because they're like, bro, you blew up our spot. We've been doing that for decades. And then you go and buy the Wu Tang album, and then all of a sudden, everyone knows that what we do is find life-saving drugs and restrict access for them.
1: Right, yes. He, he just did it with a smirk and did it kind of flamboyantly. And so the, the win that you guys had this week kind of has its roots also in, in the Trump era fights. So Trump takes surprisingly takes power in, in 2016, beats Hillary Clinton, who had her own uh, pharma plan. Uh, but he, you know, he's, got, he's this populist guy who understands that people don't like paying high drug prices, and so he talked a big game about doing something both legislatively and also through executive action. Why didn't anything end up happening, or did he did he do a little something around the edges, or what 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 were those four years?
0: So it depends on how you like what sort of brand you see Trump as, um, right? like, uh, he's not a dumb person, uh, so it's not just like you know oh he just couldn't figure it out, um, but he he really doesn't care. He got the politics pretty well, but, you know, Mitch McConnell drives the boat. Mitch McConnell's not going to allow anything to happen legislatively. You had, um, just as a, like, if you want to go back and look, like, Chuck Grassley worked with with, um, Ron Wyden in finance, and Chuck Grassley actually came, I mean, like, there was some, there was legitimately a good bill that was created in a Republican committee Um, And, you know, people not as or more optimistic people than me were like, oh, man, it's it's happening. And I'm like, there's zero percent chance that's going to happen. Mitch McConnell will never allow uh, Grassley is as far as it's going to get. And that's exactly um, the case. That's what happened. So on the Hill, there was no way that it was going to um, like McConnell was going to let anything happen. And then industry is really smart. So they got in. Trump's ear, and they put one of their guys, uh, literally, he used to run one of the three insulin cartels, Alex Azar, and he was the guy in charge of it. So Trump could say, hey, I want to do these things. And then it would go to a literal pharma executive who'd be like, we're working on it, boss, night and day, boss, we're getting right to it. You keep on telling those people and pretty soon we're going to deliver those lower drug prices. Um, That's actually what I think generally happened is that uh, you had Mitch McConnell was never going to allow anything, and he still will never allow, if he has the ability to kill anything for pharma, he will. Um, that's, That's one of his main jobs. And then on the executive side, Donald Trump, it wasn't one of Trump's key issues. It was actually like he knew it was an applause line, and so all he needed to do was say he was working on something. And then Alex Azar uh, and his ilk uh, would create enough paperwork that it looked like something was happening. You know, and there, there were some rhetorical victories. Uh, for example, for me, I've been calling for and we've been writing policy on sort of international reference pricing um, for a really long time. Now, Trump had it totally inverted, right? He's like, we should make everyone else pay more. And I'm like, N- you know, there's the other way we could just pay less. Like, you know, they don't have to pay the dumb amounts that we do. Um, But that was the most favored nation. So it never really happened. Um, And it was never, that's also a hallmark of Trump, right? Like he really cared more about the soundbite than the actual policy follow through. And industry was right there to ensure that he didn't accidentally do anything that hurt their bottom line.
1: I remember talking to you a lot in 2018, and then what, 2019, after the Democrats took control of the House, and there was a big knockdown, dragout fight in the in the House. Even though it wasn't going to become law, it seemed like that jockeying still still mattered. What was what was going on over there?
0: So I would say that that was actually the start of the policy uh, battle and the policy process that ended in the IRA. What we're talking about currently. So then, it was about defining what Medicare negotiation was going to look like, and you know, I, I can get into the the super weeds of it, or just say it was like there was sort of a let's do a lot. That's my side. Aim high. Um, it's all going to get watered down, and no Republicans are going to vote for it anyways. And then there's another side that's like aim low. Let's go ask the least terrible Republican and the worst Democrat to come up with an idea. Uh, and, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, well, let's do nothing uh, and call it binding arbitration. And it was a bruiser of a fight. Uh, I won't relive all of it, but I've got the scars to prove it. And in the end, you know, we did win. H.R. Uh, 3 is the end product of that. And um, that bill is, is really solid policy on on what you could do uh, to lower prescription drug prices. And that was the starting point of Build Back Better. So my theory, you know, patting myself on the back here, but my theory, which was contested at the time, was that we had to aim as high as possible, and then it would just consistently get watered down at each step. And if we didn't aim high enough, what crossed the finish line would not hit pharma at all. Um, and we would have had a big fight for you know no outcome at all. And I, I was proven right. Build Back Better started at H.R. 3. That's the bones of it, along with some really great stuff. What Ron Wyden was working on with Grassley, the Ron Wyden part of that and H.R. 3 sort of sewed together are the starting point of uh, Build Back Better. So Ron Wyden was the one who brought in that you can't raise the drug price faster than the rate of inflation. And if you do, you claw it back. Um, and that was that's just brilliant policy so that you don't just negotiate a lower price and then pharma's like, oh, well, now I'm just going to jack it up. So mm-hmm. it was the two sides of it together that yield um, you know, a working policy.
1: And so that doesn't seem controversial at all to me. It seems obvious. But so what was the counter argument that if you – put something that's too aggressive up front that it'll just die immediately. That's the, like, don't, don't, don't scare them.
0: Yeah. It's always the like, oh, well, this will never get a Republican vote. And I'm like, correct, (laughs) correct. It will have to pass with no Republican votes. So let's make sure that it's something that actually delivers for the American people. And that's recognizable. And I will say you know, there were a ton of allies on my side. It's not like it was me carrying the the, the stone alone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our allies on the Hill were like, yes, because what happened with Obamacare was that it took like a decade for people to actually realize that they liked Obamacare. And then they're like, oh, man, I really like Obamacare. But by then, you know, it had been used as a political cudgel to great effect. Um, so the idea of like making sure that it's it's strong enough that it helps people uh, and it's, it's recognizable. So Medicare negotiation is super recognizable. People have been fighting and calling for it since, you know, 2006 or before. So yeah, the controversy was one of these ones that I didn't understand. I was like, why is everyone fighting about this? It's so obvious. And then I will say, um, in the end, we... Uh, I actually if you want to hear because this is your podcast, the big thing is it was the pharma dems. Mm-hmm. So the people who said it wasn't as much about getting a Republican vote as it was about getting past potential blockades of pharma dems who controlled key committees.
1: Like Scott Peters is gonna block this if
0: Kurt Schrader, Scott Peters, like they're on ENC. If we don't listen to them um, they're going to kill it in committee and will never be able to get it to the floor.
1: It's the energy and commerce committee for, for the non non Hill heads. Uh, and they didn't in the end cause they lost, but they, they did pull out some stops here and there. W- yeah. What, what did, what did Peters and and his friend Kathleen Rice, w- you know, how did, how did they manage, uh, to get themselves into a position to block this?
0: So this is a great little story. And, um, so, we know Kurt Schrader, we know Scott Peters, um, and so, like, we know the Pharma Dems, and we know that Pharma is going to try something. But we are looking at our numbers, and we're like, we can get through this committee. Like, who else? So, a lot of what we push is we're like, if somebody sides with Pharma, we're going to hit them so hard uh, that you know, we might not move the pharma dem, but if there's any pharma dem curious folks out there, like we're going to actually send a message to them that they will lose their jobs if they bottle this up, if they kill it. Um, and Kathleen Rice was the, Rice was the one that we didn't see coming. So that was this really beautifully executed move by pharma, um, where they they had this previously um, non-pharma dem. And... Uh, sort of like to put another layer on it, and I, I don't, you, you reel me in, Ryan, if it's too much, but um, actually Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi at that time, had pulled some strings or, or flexed some muscle to keep progressives off of ENC, and Rice was one of her people that she put on ENC.
1: In lieu of AOC, right? Because there was a fight because there was one New York Dem that could get onto Energy and Commerce, and both AOC and Rice were gunning for it. Um, and so, yeah, Rice got it over AOC and then at the very end comes in, apparently she's became really good friends with Peters. Did you ever hear about how you guys missed the rice vote? Cause you, she beat it by one vote, right?
0: Yeah. We, uh, so we, we, they carved out a ton. They, that's where they drilled most of the most damaging holes that downgraded HR three, which had passed previously and with their votes. so. That is important. And none of them wanted to lose their jobs. We made sure that two of them did, and the third was just because we haven't, it's a top two primary, and we're, we're still coming for that one. Um, uh, I have a long memory. But it was a really well executed one. And, and I think, you know, like it, it's power and influence. And like, yeah, maybe the members became friends, but then pretty clearly Scott Peters introduced um, Rice to his friends. Who are the fancy guys in the very expensive suits who have unlimited money and they work for pharma? Uh, and they're like, "Hey, have you thought about teaming up with our two guys and you know trying to kill it in committee?"
1: And she had other ambitions. She was running for what was was it, governor or attorney general of New York?
0: state I, I can't remember other than statewide. Um, right, so she
1: needed a lot of money. Money. Right. Uh,
0: but what sh- her huge miscalculation is just how bad everyone hates pharma. And, and that knifing Speaker Pelosi in the back the way that she did um, would cut her off of a lot of power centers as well. So she had, you know, progressives were never going to like her, but like now they hated her. Um, a lot of establishment also hated her. I think she it was a it was a clear miscalculation because she lost her job and did not advance um, in her career. But that was that was the one that was the they tried to kill the whole thing in committee um, and the entire uh, weight of Speaker Pelosi's apparatus and everything that outside groups could bear, establishment groups, you know, everybody. Being the entire Democratic movement, being like, if we can't get this thing, this is the legislative accomplishment. This is the trifecta. Like they're spending all of the political capital on the Inflation Reduction Act. If you kill it, you know there's there is no other thing that's that's moving. And that weight and uh, activism, um, both on the inside and the outside, was able to rescue it and keep it moving forward. Um, but it did take significant hits, um, and you know they were almost fatal, but they weren't fatal. Uh, and but I, I will always—that's the one that I, I hand it to pharma because it was like no one saw rice coming. Um, we knew they were going to throw something at us. We didn't know it was going to be rice.
1: And is that did that end up watering it down at the end? That 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 battle through there?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's they. That's definitely where they drilled the most. So basically the in policy land, you know, there's all these levers that you can like dial up or down. And in, in this case, it's, you know, like how many drugs um, for and and is, is there a, a, a lead in? Does it start right away? Um, and the big ones there were they were drugs that the corporations had already had a bunch of years to make money on. Um, so pharma was not not hit nearly. Uh, as hard as they could have been. Uh, but still, the ripoff is so high that um, even with the watering down or drilling the holes in it, it still delivers. And, and that's sort of making my strategy make a ton of sense, that you needed to start so high uh, that like when pharma came after it, you know, you had to be like, and take every CEO's limousine um, so that when they did their maneuver, They pulled out the most offensive parts to them, uh, but the majority of it uh, kept moving, and and that's what happened.
1: So that's how you wind up with the the bill being written saying you can negotiate 10 drugs starting in 2023, another 15 the year after, 15 after that, and then 20 every year after that. The negotiations that are announced at the end of next year uh, and then they go into effect january first twenty twenty six. So it'll be a little while till you see some of these uh, di- you know some of these discounts. Uh, but this week they announced the ten drugs that right. are on that are on the list. What was your reaction to to that list?
0: Uh, it was a great list, and um, we can delve into the individuals, but I will also say that there was a another thing that happened with the announcement, which is that It also meant that the the agency, the department within CMS, was fully formed and operational, right? So, this was a fully operational Death Star aimed at pharma. And that was important because the lawsuits, pharma has, uh, all these pharmaceutical corporations have sued to try to stop it. And they're trying to stop it before it gets moving, before the bureaucracy uh, is created with a mandate of delivering a fair price to the American people, and they failed because that bureaucracy exists. I, I met a bunch of the people who work there, right? They've, and they delivered a list of 10 drugs. That's a work product from this new part of the federal government. Uh, and that's what pharma was so scared of happening because it's, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the, the bottle when it comes to creating something in the federal government that has a mission and is creating work product, uh, very difficult for them to get rid of it. It's not like they're not gonna try, but then the, the drugs that are on the list are all, all great. They were all pretty much the ones that everyone had known because it, it was based on math. They had to be the drugs that you know are the biggest rip-offs. They're the ones that these small amount of drugs account for enormous percentages of uh, Medicare Part D spending. So th- these 10 drugs account for just over 20% of the total spending in Part D, which is why you know I want all drugs right away, but the fact that you have to start with 10 and then it grows over time and it is cumulative is not the worst thing um, because it, it really is this small number of drugs and only a few years in, we'll be hitting a bunch of them. But there was one that we didn't expect, which was insulin was on there. That was a, so I, I would say that I think there are some researchers who got nine out of 10, but no one got 10 out of 10 because uh, insulin was included on there. And that was a huge uh, victory, I think, and really a testament to. Just decades of activism, uh, and also uh, a lot of credit to the Biden White House and everyone who worked in this new um, department, understanding that they 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 couldn't play by pharma's rules and pretend that we don't know what we mean when we say insulin. Insulin is in, is unaffordable, and what we mean is everything uh, that's necessary to keep someone alive, uh, and that and and. That's how uh, they looked at it in the correct way, the way that everyone means it. And by doing, you know, the common sense thing, there's insulin right on the list, and it's going to save Medicare an enormous amount of money. It's going to save people an enormous amount of money. Yeah. How does it save? So,
1: it, let's say you're not on Medicare. Um, how does this? How does this benefit you? How? How does? How do you? How does it trickle down, so to speak?
0: Yeah. I wish it was more. I wish it did more, but. It is. Um, so there's two things that I'd I'll point out here. One is that in the Inflation Reduction Act, people on Medicare have an out-of-pocket cap on, in, on insulin already, or it's, it's going into effect next year. So they'll never pay more than $35 on any insulin product. Uh, but what that means is that the federal government is just paying, so taxpayers are just paying the difference between the price and $35. The individual, the beneficiary is protected. What negotiating does is it lowers the price itself. Um, So then you lower it down and like obviously the maximum fair price on insulin is going to be $35 because that's what is, it's already been like well established. By lowering that price that Medicare pays, the way the health system and all other avenues works is the medicare price is the bar that everything else is measured off of so if you just think of it as like you know another payer is a for profit commercial plan is like hey insulin manufacturer the government is paying you 35 i'm definitely not paying you 350 right like there's no way i'm paying you 350 if the maximum fair price is 35 And we also, you know, there's people who are like, why am I paying 355? And we're like, yeah, exactly. Why are you paying 355? It should definitely be 35. It is a bit of uh, economics and it's a bit of people power. Uh, I wish that we were able to get the prices directly into the commercial market. In H.R. 3, uh, that was actually one of the most exciting pieces of H.R. 3, the, the original bill that we had just talked about. Is it included the commercial market. Um, that was stripped out. And that was a, a parliamentarian strip out. And you're like, oh, man, <laughs> the, 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 the totally made up thing, um, you know, right? And, uh, but uh, so is the Senate. So there you go. Right? Everything, it's all made up. Um, but that is, uh, that is a, it, it does not do nearly enough. Um, and and then to really put a, a, the finest point on it, um, the people who are dying, and I, I wrote a bill a long time ago, the Alex Smith Emergency Insulin Access Bill. Um, I wrote it, for, um, wrote it with uh, Senator Franken's office. And the point of it is that people die because they can't afford their insulin. And the people who are dying are uninsured people, that actually the... the um, the like Nexus was generally they were 26 year olds who are type one diabetics, and that's when they uh, they came off of their parents' insurance. Um, and it's really that at that particular moment, um, it was it's difficult to find your own insurance. Maybe you're not super employed, right? So it's like there's all these 26 year olds who are dying because they can't afford their insulin, um, and the policy response to that is to just buy those people insulin, right? Like you just make sure that at the point of sale, it's never possible that somebody can't afford their insulin. Because if you need insulin and don't have it, you have hours to live, right? So it's like, in that case, um, and, and I won't go down a bunch of policy solutions there. But um, there has been some great work at the state level that's built on that idea, right? That you you just have a program that makes sure that there's emergency access to insulin. The other way that you can do it is you just lower the actual price of insulin all the way down um, to it being affordable to people. And then you still probably need some sort of emergency access program. We have done that in, in Medicare, or it will be done in Medicare on one of the three. So you, you can see for how many words it's taken me to explain this. We've still got a long way to go. But I am also here to tell you that like you shouldn't think that then it's meaningless because uh, these corporations have never lost. They're just starting to lose. And I saw this with, you know, to go back to the beginning. Remember, HIV uh, drugs used to cost $10,000 per patient per year. And we were like, no, they don't. And then uh, countries working together, Brazil and South Africa, were like, no, they don't. We're just going to produce generic versions of this. And then they did. And then the pharmaceutical corporations were like, all right, just kidding. (laughs) It's $100 Mm -hmm. per patient per year. Uh, And across the board, all of a sudden, it went from, all of these people have to die because we can't afford antiretroviral drugs to actually we can afford it all and we'll create the PEPFAR, uh, the Presidential Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, uh, and just buy everybody the treatment that they need. Um, and pharma actually wins in that case too, you know, like they're not, they're not going out of business that's the um, immense amount of greed that I don't think people understand. They win on both sides. Um, even at the lower price, they're still making oodles of money. Um, just they care so little for the carnage that they want to charge 10000 So once the price breaks, it really does have a tremendous effect. Um, and, it, and it sort of reverberates across the system. So all of the antiretrovirals sort of fell at one time. Uh, back in that era. So I don't think you can, we don't know exactly how hard the downward pressure on um, prices in commercial market is going to be. There's people who are a lot smarter than me, who say it's going to be a lot. And then there's, you know, people who work for pharma who say it's not going to do anything at all. And you're like, well, then why did you spend all that money trying to stop it? I'm
1: not sure I believe that. Well, it's nice to see uh, the industry on the run, at least. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Alex Lawson, and that's our show. One quick note. Kathleen Rice was widely expected to run for attorney general in New York to replace Tish James, who had launched a run for governor, and Rice was included in hypothetical polls. But James ultimately dropped out of that gubernatorial race and ran again for AG, which led every Democrat to drop out or take a pass on running against her, so Rice never officially ran. She still left Congress, and she holds no elected office today. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Go ahead and rate any episode that you want, even if you rated one already. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line. Otherwise, we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon.
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23, shopify.com slash retail 23.